History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 12, Medea, Beware a Woman Scorned. Last time we looked at the life of Euripides and a summary of his plays. And this time I'm going to take a more detailed look at arguably his greatest play, but also one of his most difficult in terms of the subject matter, Medea. It's a play that has held a fascination for centuries and can still pack a punch today. That fascination is not just a lurid one over the dark ending, but also because it's a play where characters can seem opaque on first reading, but reveal some deeper truths on closer inspection. As mentioned last time, Medea, produced in 431 BCE when Euripides was about 50 years old, marks the beginning of his height as a dramatist and poet. In it, he created a role for an actress, in his time of course for an actor, that is still seen today as one of the great theatrical challenges. As a character, Medea's origins are in the Homeric tale of Jason and the Argonauts, and in particular the story of the recovery of the Golden Fleece. She is a foreigner, a former princess from the land of Colchis, located near the Black Sea in present-day western Georgia, and she's a sorceress. It's her power that allows Jason not only to claim the Golden Fleece, but succeed in other trials too. In that tale, it's important to note that she plays a significant role in Jason's success and has sacrificed much to remain at his side. The story is a relatively new one for the theatre. Aeschylus and Sophocles had not written plays relating to it before. Tantalisingly, we have some fragments from a version by Neophron of Sicyon. He was a prolific dramatist and has been credited with over 120 plays. Unfortunately, it's only fragments of his Medea that remain, but there has been enough of some scholars to suggest that Euripides used Neophon's version as the basis for his, some going so far as to suggest that he plagiarised it. The two playwrights were roughly contemporary, so it's possible, but recent scholarship and study of the fragment suggests that it is in fact a later piece from the 4th century BCE. Once again for this period, it's a very muddy picture, where definite positions are difficult to take. The only other thing we know about Neophon is that he was executed by Alexander the Great. The play is set in front of Medea's house in Corinth, near the royal palace where King Creon resides, and opens with the children's nurse relating the crisis facing the family. She tells of how, after settling in Corinth after their many adventures, Jason and Medea had achieved a good position in the town and appeared happy, but then recently Jason has taken up with Glaus, daughter of the king, and abandoned his family. The full backstory is not related explicitly in the play, but the audience would have been familiar with it, and known that to get to this position, Medea had already sacrificed much. To remain with Jason, the sacrifice had also included the lives of her father and her brother. Medea, the nurse reports, has taken this turn of events very badly, and, since learning of Jason's plans, has been roaming the house, cursing Jason, her children, and her own situation. From within, we hear Medea bemoaning her situation. The chorus of Corinthian women express their concern, and Medea comes out of the house, saying, From the house I have come forth, Corinthian ladies, for fear you should be blaming me. For I know well that among men, many women, by showing pride, have gained a bad name and a reputation for indifference. It's the same for those who shun men's gaze, or who move amid the stranger crowd, or for those who choose a quiet walk of life. For there is no discernment in the eyes of men, for they, who have surely not learnt their neighbour's heart, loathe him at first sight, 
though were never wronged by him. And so a stranger, most of all, should adopt the city's ways. Nor do I condemn the citizen who, in the stubbornness of his heart, from churlishness, resents the city's will. But this unseen disaster has fallen on me and snapped my life. I am ruined, and I long to resign the boon of existence, kind friends, and die. For he who was all in the world to me, as well you know, has turned to the worst of men, my own husband. Of all things that have life and sense, we women are the most hapless creatures. First we must buy a husband at a great price, and then let him be our master, which is a worse evil than the first. And herein lies the most important issue. Whether our choice is good or bad, for divorce is not honourable for women, and nor can we disown our lords. Next, coming as she does to new ways and customs, since she has not learnt the lessons of her in her father's home, the wife must have a diviner's eye to see how best to treat the partner of her life. If we perform these tasks with thoroughness and tact, and the husband lives with us without resenting the ties, then our life is a happy one. If not, it's best to die. But when a man is vexed with what he finds indoors, he goes out and rids his soul of its disgust, taking himself to some friend or comrade, while we must only regard his single self. And yet they say we live secure at home while they are at the wars. Well, that's a sorry reasoning, for I would gladly take any stand in battle line three times over than once to give birth. But enough, this language does not suit you as it does me. You have the city here, a father's house, some joy in life, and friends to share your thoughts, but I am destitute, without a city, and therefore scorned by my husband. I am a captive in a foreign land, and with no mother, brother, kinsman, in whom to find refuge from this calamity. This is a long passage to quote, but it's a fine example of how Euripides could move from the personal in the plot to expounding the wrongs in society. In the latter part, it's a strong criticism of the treatment of women, but also establishes Medea as an outsider and refers to her vulnerable position once she is without the protection of Jason. She can see no future without him and admits she is completely alone, with no family to rely on, a stranger in a strange land. Euripides applies all of this to her and to the position of women in general. She avows her intent to take her revenge on Jason and asks for the complicity of the chorus by not revealing her plans. The chorus leader agrees. This I will do, for you will be taking the just vengeance on your husband, Medea. It is not surprising that you should mourn your lot. So, for Euripides, the people are, or at least should be, sympathetic to her plight. King Creon enters and, fearing a plot for revenge on Jason and his daughter, he banishes Medea and her children, instructing her to leave the city immediately. She pleads with him to be allowed one day before she has to leave to plan her exile. Creon grants her requests and exits. Medea turns to the chorus and considers her plan. On all sides sorrow pens me in, who shall deny this? But all is not yet lost. Don't think it. There are still troubles in store for the new bride, and for her bridegroom no easy way. Do not think I would have fawned on Creon so, unless to gain some end, or form some scheme. No, I would not so much have spoken to him, or touched him with my hand. But foolishly he has stepped into my trap. Though he might have checked my plot by banishing me from this land, but he has allowed me to stay for a day, in which I will lay low in death three of my enemies, a father, 
his daughter and my husband too. Now, though I have many ways to effect their death, I am not sure, friends, which I should try first. Shall I set fire to the bridal mansion, or plunge the sharpened sword through their hearts, softly stealing into the chamber where their couch is spread? One thing stands in my way. If I am caught making my way into the chamber, intent on my design, I shall be put to death and cause my foes to mock. No, it's best to take the shortest way, the way we women are most skilled in, by poison to destroy them. Well, suppose them dead. What city will receive me? What friendly host will give me a shelter in his land? A home secure to save my soul alive? None. So I will wait a little, while in case some tower of defence rise up for me. Then I will proceed with this bloody deed in crafty silence. So the murder of Jason Creon and Glaus is decided on. The chorus sing an ode about the misfortunes that life can bring, and Jason enters. He admonishes Medea for her harsh temper, saying she has endangered her life and that of her children by expressing her feelings so forcefully. He justifies his advances to Glaus by claiming that his advancement will bring advantage to them all. Medea recalls their early days of adventure, when she saved him and was part of his success, and then curses his weak nature and rejects his offer of assistance to her. They argue and Jason again tries to justify his actions, saying he could not pass up the chance of advancement through the marriage to Glaus. He suggests that he can bring this off and keep Medea as his mistress. Medea and the chorus are disbelieving of this until Jason calls time on the discussion, repeats his offer of assistance to her with money and recommendation to his friends, and exits. Aegeus enters. He has been to see the oracle at Delphi and is returning home. Learning of Medea's plight, he offers her sanctuary, asking in return that she creates a cure for his sterility. There's some good here in Medea's role. The child that will result from his increased potency, brought on by Medea's potion, will be Theseus, founder of Athens. Medea sees her chance and agrees. There are now no obstacles to taking her revenge, and it's a plan that she now adapts to include the death of her own children. She makes the cold calculation that their loss will cause more suffering to Jason than it will to her. The chorus leader questions her actions. Since you have imparted this design to me, I ask you to hold your hand, both from a wish to serve you and because I would uphold the laws made by man. To which Medea responds, It cannot be so. I pardon your words since you are not in the same sorry plight that I am in. Incredulous, the chorus leader can only ask, O lady, will you steal yourself to slay both your children? Medea is firm in her decision. I will, for that will stab my husband to the heart. And the chorus leader can only respond with, It may, but you will be the saddest wife alive. When Jason returns, Medea takes on a more sympathetic role towards him and pretends to be accepting of her fate. She calls for her children and asks that they be allowed to remain in Corinth and benefit from Jason's new connections. She says to enlist the help of Glaus in this respect to Creon, she will make her a gift of a coronet and robe that were an heirloom of the god Helos. Jason is convinced and leaves to deliver the items with the children. Believing that Glaus will be unable to resist wearing the robe, Medea has covered it with poison and now she mourns the coming deaths as she knows everything is in place for her plan to succeed. 
Following an ode where the chorus lament the coming deaths, seeing no way that the terrible deeds can now be undone, Medea suffers a moment of doubt, but persuades herself that her plan has to stand. Messengers report to Medea firstly that her children have been allowed to remain in Corinth, and then that, as she had predicted, Glaus had tried on the robe and coronet immediately, and died in agony as the poison took effect. They report that Creon the king is also dead. Unable to bear the suffering of his daughter, he had embraced her tightly, knowing that the poison would also kill him. Throughout the gruesome descriptions, Medea remains calm and attentive. But she almost has a change of heart as she says farewell to her children. As the chorus protest, Medea kills the children off stage. Their cries for help as they attempt to avoid her blows interrupt the chorus's lament. The chorus then gather at the door of the house, but cannot enter and can only mourn the children. Jason arrives too late to save them, and the chorus reveal what has happened. He is left cursing his bad fortune and the plans for advancement that are now ended in disaster. He cries out that he only now has years of pain and regret to look forward to. Then Medea appears. She admits to being in pain herself from her actions, but still justifies them against Jason's mistreatment of her. She exits, carried off by Apollo in the deus ex machina, and taking the bodies of her children with her. The play ends with the chorus considering the influences of the will of the gods on Medea's actions. Zeus dispenses many fates from high on his Olympian throne. Often the gods bring things to pass beyond man's expectation. That which we thought would be is not fulfilled, while for the unlooked for the gods find a way out, and so it has been in the issue of this matter. What makes Medea different from Clytemnestra or Electra is that we see the complete nature of her humiliation, her despair and her jealousy. If we found Clytemnestra forthright and passionate, well, in comparison, Medea turns it up to eleven and lets nothing hold her back. The play turns on the central performance because the focus is almost entirely on her for the duration. This is very different from the role of Clytemnestra, to whom Medea is most often compared, based on their common murderous intent. But Jason is not completely without interest, as we can see his reported progression from a young man in thrall to his lover, to an older man who tires of her and his thoughts turn to personal ambition. He is the foil that makes Medea's plight sympathetic, until the last moments when the terrible revenge leaves no one on her side. Jason is the only other character in the play with any depth. Creon comes across as ineffectual and is only there to progress the plot, and Aegeus is only lightly sketched. Jason is drawn as a man who, as he has aged, has become obsessed with social and, implicitly, political advancement as his only aim. The luster of his youthful adventures is perhaps waning and middle age creeping in on him. He tries to put a good spin on his actions, claiming that he is working for the advancement of his children and Medea. He can't say wife as they're not married due to anti-foreigner laws, more of which in a moment. He even points out that he will be able to keep Medea on as his mistress, but this all falls flat and what we see is a man keen to get away from the woman he's tired of. I don't think Euripides intended the portrait to be ambiguous. Jason is ambitious and determined and happy enough to cast Medea off, and as a foreigner that leaves her with a real problem. Until she has the good fortune of the offer of sanctuary in Athens from Aegeus, she really does have nowhere else to go. 
This is clever crafting of Jason's character. We sympathise with Medea until the very last moment of the play because Jason is treating her so badly. Had he been more sympathetic character himself, then the overall effect, the ability to keep the audience with Medea for so long, would not have been so effective. Where interplay between Medea and Jason succeeds, the use of the chorus in the play has been criticised as inconsistent. They are used to move the action along, but stand by as the children are murdered, only to then sing of the advantages of being childless. It's an odd, clumsy moment, especially as a chorus are supposed to be the women of Corinth, so you would assume sympathetic towards the children. None of their interjections work at justifying Medea's actions, nor do they give any further insight into Medea's state of mind. They are at best underused. Last time I discussed how the Euripidean view of women is seen as different as commentators disagree on his true intentions. In Medea, I think the position is possibly at its clearest in all of his works. Here, it seems to me, he comes down solidly as critical of the Athenian view on the rights of women and foreigners. We have to remember Medea is both. She and Jason have not been allowed to marry because of her status as a foreigner. In 451 BCE, laws were passed in Athens that restricted legitimate marriage. For a marriage to be recognised, both parties had to be of freeborn status and legitimate children of Athenian citizens. Foreign residents, metics as they were known, were therefore in at a considerable disadvantage. In practice, it seems that the wealthier metics could be considered married if they completed the ceremonies, but it was always something that could be used against them if they fell foul of the authorities for some other reason. Pericles himself was said to have had some troubles over the legitimacy of his marriage. Euripides is suggesting that Medea's views are at least in part formulated by those unfair rules and by extension of the role given to women in general. In the play, some of the most eloquent language is reserved for Medea's complaint about the situation of women. The fact that a woman had virtually no rights in society, moving from being the property of her father to that of her husband, to whom she was expected to provide a dowry and adapt to the rules of his household, is clearly expressed in the passage that I quoted earlier. Medea as the strange foreigner also plays into this view. The encounter with Aegeus points up her role as a sorceress and also as a woman who understands sex. To the Athenian male audience, this is all screaming odd, strange, outsider, dangerous. Structurally, the play is much simpler than most other Greek plays. Most scenes only involve Medea and one other character, emphasising Medea's ability to manipulate all around her, including the supposedly stronger male characters. This implies that only two actors were used in the production, one playing Medea and the other all of the other main characters. It's also unusual compared to other plays in that the killings are done in cold blood and go unpunished. Usually the act of familial killings are framed as a moment of temporary madness and it's likely that the distinction was notable to the audience. And there's an interesting moment of reverse theatricality to wrong-foot the audience. When Jason arrives after his children have been killed, he stands with the chorus in front of the great doors of the Skene and calls for them to be opened. He says, reveal to me, echiclaim in Greek. But this time, the doors do not open. There is no echiclaimer, no tableau of Medea standing over her dead children. 
Instead, she appears on the deus ex machina to be taken to safety by the gods and in possession of her children's bodies, leaving Jason absolutely nothing. Through the years of scholarship on this play, the character of Medea has been much thought over and many different opinions abound. What we can all agree on is that Euripides shows the inner emotions, particularly love and vengeance, extremely well. But the fact that she is a foreigner gives any contemporary opinion a layer that we might miss. For the Greek audience, she is an outsider from start to finish, which might lead to some excusing of her actions. The Athenian view of foreigners was unforgiving. They were called babaros, referring to the crude way they spoke or barked Greek. Well, of course, we get the word barbarism from that. The concept of foreigner and barbarian, and the idea that anyone outside the Athenian orbit was somewhat another, were all very close in the Athenian mindset. So, making her foreign in origin is a shorthand for a complex contemporary view. Most criticism of Medea comes from the ending, where the cruelty of her actions and the subsequent escape on the deus ex machina have been much questioned. As a sorceress, there are other dramatic options open to Medea. Many commentators question if the killing of her children is just too unbelievable and over the top. Euripides was, of course, following the story of the myth, but, as we have seen before, the poets would often change these stories significantly when it served their purpose. The dramatic problem for Euripides was that given her banishment and the subsequent murders, Medea really has nowhere else to go. He was overfond of the use of the deus ex machina, so it seems that that solution would have come to him easily. One view to tidy up the point is to say that the gods made Medea a sorceress and set the train of events in motion, so that it's fitting that they provide the resolution. Some commentators suggest that the play is not a tragedy at all, but melodrama, and it's true that Medea's tragedy is not driven by the whim of the gods or her own hubris, as in other tragedies. However, one can argue that her passionate nature, her hot-headedness, is the root of the tragedy, in the same way it is for Oedipus, but, and it's a big but, Medea is far more cool and calculating than any other protagonists in the surviving plays. The death of her children, unquestionably the most tragic act of the play, is cold-blooded murder. This could easily be played as melodrama. There is plenty of opportunity for bombast, exaggeration and excessive sentimentality. But played with thought, the truth of the character of Medea can be seen for all but the last moments of the play. It speaks to the position forced on women and the destructive nature of excessive passion and rage. And that's not just in Medea, but in Jason too. So, it can stay on the right side of melodrama, if not strictly speaking tragedy, then good drama at least, and can appeal not just on the emotional level. Sophocles is said to have commented of Euripides that he shows men as they are. He didn't mean that in an entirely complimentary way. Euripides introduced psychological realism to characters in a way that Sophocles and Aeschylus never had. Medea is strong and passionate by nature, but she is not a single-minded Clytemnestra who suffers no doubts over her murderous actions, and that makes her a more ambiguous character and a more subtle one too. This, I think, is what future dramatists took most from Euripides, that you can tell a story of monumental, almost unbelievable events and have that populated with characters that are portrayed in a real and believable way.
And as powerful a lesson as that is, it also has problems. Subtlety on the large scale in an open-air theatre using the constraints of a formalised and masked theatrical form is not easy to achieve. This is drama of a different kind, perhaps explaining why it was not so obviously popular in its day. This could be uncomfortable stuff for his audience, both emotionally and intellectually. Euripides is the first dramatist who attempts to say to his audience, but for a small change in life or character, these behaviours could be yours. I had the good fortune to see the National Theatre production of Medea in London a few years ago. Helen McCrory took the lead with Danny Soprani as Jason. It was a production that showed how the events could be presented realistically and be believable. The key, I think, was the way Medea was clearly shown descending into a type of madness, that temporary madness that was common in Greek tragedy, and the downplaying of the cold, calculating part of Medea's actions. Where the strong, passionate relationship between Medea and Jason is played up, it's possible to see that the loss of that, both for its material and emotional consequences for Medea, could drive her to a place where any action that would hurt her errant partner would be possible. In modern terms, it's an extreme emotional breakdown with the worst possible consequences. Medea has to be played by an actress with considerable skill to achieve this and perhaps it's no coincidence that on this occasion the play was also directed by a woman. Carrie Cracknell has also had success with other plays where female psychology is to the fore, such as A Doll's House and adapted versions of Miss Julie and Hedda Gabler. McCrory said that Medea was one of the greatest parts she would ever get to play, but also, not surprisingly, one of the hardest. She said her usual technique was to inhabit a role as entirely as she could, but on this occasion, because of the murder of the children, she couldn't do that and had to learn the skill of acting a part while remaining detached from it. To say that Medea came last in competition is correct, but a kinder way to put it would be to say that it came third. In that year, the competition was between Euripides, Sophocles and Euphorion, who was the son of Aeschylus. Euphorion won the competition, forcing the ever-popular Sophocles into second place, so it seems that it was a very strong year and Euripides was considered one of the top three in very good company. Medea may have been too controversial to win whatever the competition, but nevertheless, its value had been recognised as one of the top three plays for that year put to the selectors, and it still holds its resonance today. Next time, we'll be taking a detailed look at Electra. It's another strong female character from Euripides, but not as well regarded as Medea. We take another turn towards realism, as Euripides tackles the story of Electra and Orestes taking revenge on their mother. But it's a different take on the story from the version by Aeschylus. All is not as you think you know it is. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.